Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Yes, it's always good to hear people cheering over the right and righteous. (laughs) Yes, Solidarity Breakfast with Andy and Kim. And coming up today, we're going to revisit the... uh, Workers' Day celebrations that were held outside uh, Victoria Trades Hall on Sunday the 7th. Yes, that me and Annie were both at. That's exactly right. We were. We were both at that. I better get that right. (laughs) The mics got it. Uh, numerically challenged at this time in the morning. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we were both there and there were lots of other people there as well, which was... Uh, uh, I was told that uh, in Queensland that uh, on a May Day, 30,000 people turn up for... It's the biggest Workers' Day event in Queensland. And it's on May the 1st, is that right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So many more people. And if you uh, were looking at uh, it for this sort of stuff, you'll find that there's events all around Queensland, like Gladstone and places like that. So it's a, it's a big day there. Uh, there were about a 1,000 or so people at the May Day uh, celebrations and the march, and it was uh, a happy day. There were lots of things happening. Uh, that's an increase over the uh, last few years, and I've got a suspicion that that's got, that uh, is going to increase and increase, especially after the last budget. Yes. Yeah, that one was a... In disguise, I think. Yeah. Lots of nasties in that budget. Yes, insidious. The slow death by a thousand cuts kind of budget. We'll talk about that later. Uh, But like I said, first up, we're going to visit uh, the uh, Workers' Day celebrations. We're going to go on to uh, find out what happened or why Haksu, the... uh, Health and Community Services Union people were on the steps at uh, Vic Parliament on Wednesday. We're going to hear from Kevin. This is the week that was. And then we're going to talk to Gregory Miller, who has made a film called Cultivating Murder, which is going to be on at uh, ACME today at 4pm. It's an amazing film. Uh, It's... uh, it's subtitled Global Warming, Land Clearing and Cold-Blooded Murder. Fair Go for Pensioners is holding a protest rally on Wednesday the 24th of May at the State Library of Victoria at 11am to defend our rights against continuing cuts to welfare payments and essential public services. This means down goes living standards of low-income groups and up goes poverty. 
Australia does not have a welfare problem, it has a poverty problem. Take a stand with Fair Go for Pensioners to defend your rights. The State Library of Victoria, 11am, Wednesday the 24th of May. Fair Go for Pensioners is a 3CR supporter. Now May Day is an important day and it's a workers' day and so it's nice to see quite a few people here today. Yeah, well I'm from the Rail, Tram and Bus Union and I'm a socialist and I'm out, uh, I come out every May Day to take a stand to maintain the traditions of workers' struggle and to continue to fight the bosses and fight the capitalist state. I'm from Fusiak, do you want to tell me about your piece of uh, conceptual art? <laughs> yes, it's what I think our politicians do to us. Yes, and it's a huge screw. It's a ground screw, one for use to put solar panels in the field. I acquired it from the um, Solar Expo on the 4th of May a couple of days ago. Okay, so it was perfect. And uh, you've come to the May Day uh, March. Uh, Important to you? Yes, it's very important to me. Reason being, I had my power disconnected five years ago because I didn't want the smart meter, and I've had no power since... I've written to every MP, the Prime Minister, the Ottomans and you name it. I've written to them and I don't get any response. Why does it relate to coming today? Protest. It's only about where I can at least make your voice heard. Governments don't care, politicians don't care. Councils care less. OK, thanks very much. Thanks. I'm from 3CR, do you want to tell me why you're here today? Go on, tell me. Uh, just for a bit of solidarity, solidarity with the union movement. Thanks. I'm from 3CR. Do you want to tell me why you're here today and why it's important? Yes, absolutely. I'm here. Well, I do work at Trades Hall, so I'm here um, to support my comrades. But particularly I'm here to celebrate and recognise working women's rights and to uh, remind people that we have to keep fighting for those rights and not take it for granted that we'll maintain them. Thank you. I'm here to support the union movement and make an expression Things which I believe. I believe the union represents the uh, work- workers, and should be uh, have have a power to make sure that the the, the, uh, the balance between employer needs and worker needs is seen to be existing. Thank you, Lisa Heap. It's nice to see a crowd of people out here on May Day. Oh well, it's not May Day, but it's May Day working days, working people celebration in Melbourne. It is fabulous today. Um, we decided that we'd uh, start with a family day in the morning, this morning, and that would lead up to people then taking part in the march and the rally um, to celebrate international workers' solidarity, and we think we've really nailed it in terms of getting some families along today, so it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, the uh, uh, nursery uh, animals and uh, stuff like that, great idea. Yeah, it's great. We've got the family stuff, we've got the political stuff. It's all working together, so um, by bringing the two things together, I think we've made a recipe that will work for the future. Thank you. Okay, just t- tell me who you are and tell me why it's important to uh, be part of May Day. 
Uh, my name is Van Batam. I'm a journalist for Guardian Australia. Before I say anything, I just want to pledge my solidarity to fellow MEAA members at Fairfax in their campaign to uh, preserve their jobs and quality journalism. Um, my day is an extremely important day to me because obviously, given the struggles of working class people to uh, establish their rights, their conditions and their freedoms, which is something that we don't talk a lot about. I mean, we're not so many decades away from a time where when you were born into a social class, you were legally limited about the things that you could do with your life from birth. And May Day is important to me because it celebrates the struggles that have come before, it draws attention to the struggles of the present, and it gives us an opportunity to think about our future as a mobilised class of working people. What's it mean? Uh, it, we, we live in troubled times, basically, in terms of uh, industrial relations. Uh, what are the main issues, do you think? Well, in Australia, I think uh, just immediately we have to look at the fact that globalisation has not been fair. Um, I actually wrote an article recently about a need for a global minimum wage standard because while we've had a uh, we've had globalisation for capitalists but not globalisation for working people, and while we have factories closing in Australia because uh, capital is going to other countries to participate in the exploitation and oppression of other working class people, um, clearly the argument around international solidarity and wages and conditions is really important because it protects our own jobs as well as well as protecting our brothers and sisters in other countries. Um, Obviously in Australia the massive issue that we're dealing with here is casualisation. 40% of the workforce is now casualised and we know that casualisation uh, creates ferments conditions um, of wage theft, of underpayment, of exploitation. Um, we're seeing the trend in all the Western countries towards zero hours contracts where people are effectively owned by their employers with no guarantee of stable work or stable payment. Um, the amount of pressure that puts on people and the way that creates like competition amongst working people for jobs, for pay, is just disgraceful. In Germany, when their rate of workplace casualisation hit 20%, it was considered a national emergency um, involving tripart discussions between business, government and unions. Well, in Australia, it's double that and we have a government that's doing absolutely nothing about it. I think we have to look at the fact that we have um, an anti-worker, deeply conservative government that are set, setting up the conditions for kleptocracy. The fact that a $50 billion tax cut is going to the richest corporations in Australia, corporations who barely pay tax anyway, is a national shame um, for a government to turn around and introduce a $4 job program for young people is just absolutely rank legalised workplace exploitation and it sets up the means for an economy that exists only at two speeds. The speed for the rich who get everything and for everybody else who get increasingly nothing. And we have to look at this as like a holistic problem. It's an intersection of creeping costs around healthcare, the fact that education is becoming a buyer's market, you know, that jobs are unstable, people are casualised, there's a housing bubble that's locking people out of the security of a family home asset. Like, we, we can't be, like, ambivalent or ambiguous anymore about what's going on. We're seeing, like, capitalism absolutely promoting the interests of the 1% ahead of everybody else. And that betrays the very basic social contract, which is modern Australia, which is an egalitarian society where everybody is born equal and everybody has the right to, uh, to a life of security and peace and not to compete against one another for the scraps of survival. Now, the thing, really interesting thing about this is that it's not just... Uh people who might have socialist views about this but actually if you drill down and look at it in a conservative political mode 
Actually, this government is proving itself to be disastrously incompetent. Well, what this government is doing is it's committing the, the one great um, sort of sabotaging sin of ruling class governments, and that is that it's attacking the middle class. And the middle class can only handle that for so long. So, you know, they're sowing the seeds of their own destruction. But on a personal level, I genuinely believe the majority of Australians are socialists. I mean, it's a word that, you know, the Cold War and, and decades of authoritarianism really destroyed for a large community of people. I mean, how do you turn around to Chinese Australians or Vietnamese Australians and say, oh, look, socialism, this word that's associated with authoritarian structures that oppressed you and drove you away from your home. Oh, even the fascists, Hitler's fascists used it in their name. Absolutely. But I'm proud to be a socialist because I believe in some very basic values. I believe that we're all in this together. I believe in democracy and the rights of the collective to assert its own authority over its future. I believe in the socialisation of industry. I believe that healthcare is a right, education is a right. I believe that the rich are rich and therefore should be supporting the rest of us. And, and you know, if you like on Facebook, you say, and if you agree with this, you should come out to May Day. Absolutely, you should come out to May Day because we are all in this together. And if you're not a member of a union, if you don't understand the celebration and the joy that comes with participation, the organised struggle of working class life, it's time you came. Thanks. Well, there you go. That was a rant, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) But uh, after that, after uh, we chatted to different people around the place, we went off on, on a march, didn't we? Yeah, we did, around the city. Yeah, it was fun. It was lots of fun. Uh, uh, the uh, Socialist Alternative did fantastic chants. They were great. And uh, then uh, and it was led by a pipe band, which it always is, which is always fun. Always, uh, it's great. Uh, pipe bands are just fantastic. <laughs> That's right. Me and Annie were marching together and I could hear the pipes. And I was like, are they with us? And Annie ran off to, <laughs> <laughs> I had to, go, to I catch gonna, them. I remembered, yes. And you'll hear at the end of the next p- sequence because uh, – I've uh, I put together bits and pieces from the speeches. Uh, this, there was a choir from the Geelong uh, uh, Trades, Trades Hall. Hall, and uh, then after, and so I've what I've put in at the end here because we're going to listen to some. You know, if you weren't there, it's worthwhile having a listen to what was said. So I've put together a few of the speeches, but also some of the choir, and also we end off with the chants. It's a little bit uh, non chronological. We actually got all the chants and all the great stuff. And I have to say that the uh, Socialist Alliance people sang the Internationale. I oh, wa- right, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to put it on tape, but it, my it, my um, recording didn't do it justice. But they... It was terribly out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fantastic because they knew the words. There was a guy just near me who knew all the words to... All, he must have a... a um, a medal for, uh, you know, one of those badges of honour for knowing many, many of the uh, verses of the International. Yes, and you can tell which is the favourite line because they always shout it rather than we always yeah, shout that's... it. We shoot the generals on our own side. That always gets... Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. It's great. Anyway, um, anyway, we all had... Fun was had by all, but uh, I'll, we'll let you share. Well done for marching in the 2017 May Day Rally. The weather gods have held up for us, so that's wonderful. We are the Geelong Trades Hall Choir and we're going to sing as you all gradually make your way back here and there will be speeches after us. So this is the fun part of it. We're the the Geelong Trades Hall Choir. We're going to sing for you.
Thank you. The, the next speaker is, is Dave Noonan from the CFMEU, the National Secretary. Thanks, Paddy. Uh, first of all, thanks for that welcome to country, and I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land we meet on and march on and to their elders past and present. I want to start off on this, the day of global solidarity and struggle for working people, by talking about a couple of struggles that are going on in this country at the moment. Firstly, CFMEU members at Myrtleford, who are locked out of the mill at Myrtleford for weeks now, need our support, deserve our support in their struggle for decency and wages, not on strike, locked out by their employer. Also my own union, I want to pay respect to a comrade called Dave McLaughlin. He's a coal miner from Port Kembla. Dave has been sacked by South 32, which is a spin-off company from BHP, because on behalf of his colleagues, they led a protest about a breach of the agreement. Coal miners not allowed, not, not, not given proper working equipment and working clothing for their shifts. They had a 10-minute protest where they stood in their underwear in front of the management. As a result, he's been sacked, not even on working time. I want to pay tribute to the members of the Australian Workers' Union who are on strike on a picket line out at Dandenong, at Fletcher's, insulation workers. They've been out for weeks. They deserve our support. And I also... And I also want to mention the journalists from Fairfax who are standing up against a greedy corporation that wants to destroy their jobs and pay their executives millions and millions of dollars. Now, I've got to say, some members of our, my own union have said to me, why would we support Fairfax journalists? They've pointed out to me and reminded me, if I needed reminding, that these same journalists, some of them, not all of them, a few of them, were involved in writing a lot of anti-union material in the last few years. They reminded me that the manager of Fairfax, Mr Highwood, when he was challenged about the performance of the company, said how proud he was of the role of Fairfax in bringing about the Hayden Royal Commission. So people say, why should we support him? Well, I'll tell you why. We've got a situation in this country where we've got a couple of media companies that dominate the media, but when you've got a situation where working people take illegal strike action to stand up to a corporation which is trying to slash jobs, drive down wages and take away diversity in the voices in our community, I think they deserve and demand our support. Whatever you think about the rights of individuals, this is a principle, so we stand with them. It's a bit of irony, of course, because some of those same journalists were also amongst the very ones who wrote articles condemning the new secretary of the ACTU, Sally McManus. Sally had the temerity to say that sometimes bad laws need to be broken. Now, 
I was, at a, I was at a meeting a couple of days after she said it when the media had whipped themselves into a frenzy. And there was a, uh, there was a trade unionist from America, from the AFL-CIO, hardly the most radical union body in the world. And he was asked what he thought about it. And he said the following. He said, well, at the time that Martin Luther King was murdered, he was in Memphis to lead a march, an illegal march, which had been banned by the courts in, su in support of an illegal strike by the sanitation workers. And he said, it's not a question of whether you support Sally McManus or not, it's whether you support the principles of Martin, Lu Martin Luther King or you support the people that banned the march, the judges that banned the march and the people that murdered him. And he said, I know what side I'm on. Right. right? And I thought that was a pretty good point. So we're in a situation now where increasingly we're seeing attacks on working people, on their unions. We're seeing a situation where we've got a set of laws in this country which were introduced by the last Labor government in relation to the Fair Work Act, which are failing to defend workers. It's not a Fair Work Act when we see wage theft occurring with the likes of 7-Eleven, Domino's, Caltex. Asset Interiors, all of these corporations have got business models which are predicated not just on extracting surplus value from workers but on breaking the law in the pursuit of doing so. It's not an accident, it's not a coincidence, this is their business model. And we've got a set of laws which are ineffective in defending the rights of working people. So what do we do? Well there's always the argument that we need to change the government. We do need to change the government. We need to get rid of Turnbull. We need to get rid of those people. But what we also need to do is this. We need to recommit to building a working class trade union movement which can stand up and be effective for working people at any time, under any government, around the globe. Stick together. That's what we've got to do. Thanks very much, Dave. The next speaker is Will Starkey from the Victorian Trades Oil Council. All right, thanks comrades. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This land was stolen, never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I also would like to reaffirm our shared values as unionists. We're union. We stand united as part of a great movement of workers. Our diversity is our strength. Our solidarity is our power. We respect and take care of each other. Prejudice and discrimination, including misogyny, racism, homophobia and all other hatreds have no place in our movement. We rise together. Today and every day we commit ourselves to achieving justice, fairness, equality and dignity for all workers. Solidarity forever. All right, comrades, we're celebrating May Day, and it is fitting that we do that outside this building here, because this is the oldest continuously functioning trade union building in the world. It was built by union members with donations from union members, and it is the centre of the struggle in Victoria. Today's a day where we commit ourselves to fighting back, fighting back against those who are pushing the system so that it is so far out of balance that it's lost touch 
with workers and with the community. And in working and defining that fight, we define what it is to be union. If there are three things that we stand for at as a movement, it is safe workplaces, secure jobs and fair pay. And all three of those things are currently under attack. So every day around the world, workers head off to work. They do that to earn money, put food on the table and have a roof over their heads. Every, every year around the world, two million of them never come home. We know that in Victoria, over 200 people lose their jobs as a direct result of an injury that they've sustained at work. They are farm workers, construction workers, factory workers, dock workers, quarry workers, frontline service workers, exotic dancers, trainers, drivers, instructors and pilots. And as a union movement, we believe that every one of those workplace deaths is preventable. And it is incumbent on every one of us to do whatever it takes. So right now, there are two things that we can do. First off, the ABCC. It has to go. This is catastrophic for the safety of Australian construction workers, for the men and women who work in construction. Last time the ABCC was around, it doubled the number of workplace deaths. We know there is a clear link between the presence of a union and workplace safety. Workers were killed on construction sites as a direct result of those laws, and it is incumbent on every one of us here to stand in solidarity and fight those laws. Secondly, gendered violence and bullying are serious issues. 64% of working women in Victoria experience gendered violence. Sexist language, sexual harassment or sexual assault at the workplace. This causes them injury. And therefore, it is incumbent on us to stand up and say, as unions, this is our business. Fighting this and changing this is our business, and that's what we're doing.
Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yeah, you are, and it's mm. uh, Solidarity Breakfast. That was fun. Yes, that was fun. <laughs> I love the one about the workers' revolution. Yeah. That was terrific. Brings we had a lot of fun yelling and screaming in some cases. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was quite interesting that uh, – a lot of the people along the sides were quite uh, excited and enjoyed it as well. Yes, although <laughs> some of them looked quite perplexed, but they didn't seem to bother them that they didn't understand what it was about. No, that's right. People took uh, flyers and stuff like that, so that was a good thing too. That's a, always a good sign when mm. people are interested to find out. But there was a general uh, air of uh, happiness that there was a bit of movement on the other side of politics, it seems to me. But yeah. anyway, hmm. So that was uh, May Day, uh, um, uh, Workers' Celebration, uh, International Workers' Day Celebrations at uh, Victoria Trades Hall. Uh, you've got something fantastic to tell us about a bit of an action in France. Uh, we've all been – one side of politics has been uh, focusing on the election, but the other side of politics is having much more fun. Yes. Well, you know, some people were accusing Bill Shorten of class warfare. <laughs> Uh, this might actually be an accurate description of class warfare. Uh, so French workers have seized a their factory and threatened to blow it up over um, closures, the threat of closures. So I'm going to have a go at pronouncing the name of the factory, which is a car factory, car component factory in central France, and it's La Souterne. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. But they've been occupying the plant for, I think, a couple of days now. And so they're threatening, as I said, to, and they have apparently placed explosives um, in the factory to blow it up if their demands are not met. These goddamn workers who know how to do things. I know. (laughs) Um, But the thing that I find the most hilarious is that they've been ransoming off these machines. So (laughs) the union, the trade union representatives announced that the workers will destroy a machine each day unless their (laughs) demands are met. And the pictures are quite hilarious because there's all these kind of sad looking machines that have obviously just been executed. (laughs) Um, But I think probably my favourite one is that um, one of the machines they actually cut in half with an oxy torch which came to quite a sad end, but I would... And as I said, there's a lot of love and hate in that sort a of... A lot of love <laughs> and hate, yes. You can have a look at the pictures because it seems to be more delight if you want to have a look at um, someone cutting through a giant machine with an oxy torch, see what that looks like. <laughs> I recommend looking it up. But they've been posting it on social media, but I can't read any of the things they're saying because it's all in French. Yeah, the French are creative, aren't they? They are, but the pictures are universal. <laughs> Anyway, Anyway, that's how you do class warfare. That's exactly right. And uh, another way, of course, was uh, what the Haksu people did on Wednesday. They went to the Parliament steps in Victoria to uh, uh, talk about privatisation and how they don't want the privatisation of part of the community health system in Victoria. Now, Matt Kunkel has given us a interview that he did with Liz Deutsch of uh, Haksu, which is the Health and Community Services Union, which is part, a subsection of the Health Services Union, actually, uh, which is an interesting, see, they like to catalogue. They're catalogues. Anyway, here we go. Let's find out more about uh, what they were trying to get across to the public as well as to the Andrews government. Joining me now is Elizabeth Doidge from Haksu, the Health and Community Services Union. Uh, thanks for joining us on 3CR, Elizabeth. No worries. 
Last Wednesday, we saw hundreds of Hacks Who members march on Parliament demanding that Daniel Andrews reverse his decision to privatise disability services in Victoria. Can you tell us why privatising disability services in Victoria is such a bad idea? Um, It's a bad idea for a number of reasons. Basically, the public service in Victoria that provides uh, over 2,500 people with profound disabilities, um, disability accommodation services, has an incredibly high standard that it has to meet, um, and that's because it is a government service. And because of this high standard, it forces all the other service providers, the not-for-profit and the for-profit sector, up. So if we get rid of the public sector, the benchmark which everybody has to meet is cut down. One of the common themes from the rally on Wednesday was that this was linked in some way to the NDIS. How is the privatisation of disability services in Victoria linked to the rollout of the NDIS? Basically, the NDIS is not funded to the same levels as the public sector, so therefore the government is getting rid of the public sector so they don't have to be involved in you know, topping up extra money to go into the disability services. And why is that such a bad thing? So the NDIS is a funding model and public services are a, um, a service model, so it's actually two completely different things. The government's been conflating the two, um, basically to cover their asses because they don't want to admit that they need to cut costs and in doing that they will cut wages and potentially risk the lives of people with disabilities. Is that all right to say us? Yeah, it's fine. It's okay. community radio. Uh, <laughs> um, late last year, Haksu held a rally at the front of ALP State Conference in Victoria protesting the privatisation of disability services. One of the things that the union was calling for was the Premier to meet with the union. Has the Premier met with the union since that time? Uh, no, the Premier hasn't met with the union. Um, we have met with the ministers. However, they haven't been able to give us any clear information. This, was, this came as a surprise to the union that the government was pushing ahead with its privatisation plan, putting it out for an expression of interest. Where's the consultation? Um, we do have regular meetings and negotiations with the government trying to work out how we can protect public sector workers. But every time we ask them a question like, where are you up to with the EIO press, EOI process? Uh, they've said they're not engaged in it and yet here they are making an announcement that they've clearly been working on for several months. So, Elizabeth, what will privatising disability services in Victoria mean for those service users? Uh, Privatising disability services will mean that the service users, these people with profound intellectual disabilities, will be having to rely on casual staff, and this is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to them. Why? Um, These staff... uh, Sorry, these service users, these people with disabilities, rely on continuity of staff. That's the only way they can live their best possible lives, and privatisation completely destroys that. We heard at the rally that privatising disability services would see workers lose between $80 and $200 a week. Will experienced workers in this sector stay if the services are privatised? Huxley conducted polling last year which showed that only 40% of the workers would consider staying and those who would consider staying would be exploited completely. So what should the government do to fix this problem? Haxa are calling on the government to give every single person in public accommodation services, that's every client, the choice to stay in public sector or to go to the not-for-profit or private sector if they want. Matter, Matt, good stuff. And uh, if you want to find out what the megaphone uh, 
uh, information is, you know, the, uh, the uh, petition that uh, Haxu has been putting out, then uh, just you just have to go and... Google it. Google it. That's all right. Yeah, go to Mega, Megaphone and uh, ask for Hatsu and you'll get the uh, petition, which is very important. You can say... I mean, the, the juicy bit in that, of course, was that... Uh, the uh, Haksu uh, staff uh, can be, expect to lose $200 out of their pay packets. I mean, for God's sake, that's what it's really about. It's not about uh, the care of people. It's not about anything. Bean mm. counters working out the system for uh, actually delivering health care to, uh, to people who, are, who can't speak up it's and just horrible because like they say the continuity is so important imagine you know that you had a, a disability and suddenly there's all these people who are caring for you in a very intimate way that you don't know that you think you've never met before yeah, quite possibly exactly you right. haven't and of course terrible for the actual workers themselves mm. because what do humans do when they're put into situations of moral dilemma or and a difficulty but they have to earn a living they justify the situation. That's all they can do. Or they work too hard. Yeah, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard stuff. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. Apologies for the slackness of my editing. But anyway, by the by, sorry, Matt, but it was a great piece of material. The uh, budget, the budget, one of the things that that came out of the budget was it's actually this, you know, it's a three-pronged thing. Drug testing of unemployed people, the cashless welfare card and further cuts to Centrelink staff over 1,000. Over one, over 1,000 more people are going to be cut from Centrelink. What are the common denominators of those three statements that have come out of the last budget? Well, I think that they're just going to... What they're going to do is basically extort welfare recipients for money to pay for the taxes that are being cut to big business. I mean, that's what this robo-debt scheme is. It's just extorting money from people. Uh, but it's not just that, you know. It's, uh, I mean, that's the result. But, you know, you think about what it is that this government's actually planning to do. It's doing what, say, a cattle dog would do to corral a whole lot of sheep into the shearing shed, basically. It's setting up uh, bureaucratic arrangements that are corralling people into a smaller and smaller space and they're expecting that all this pain that they're inflicting on people has a bigger consequence in the same way as, say, corralling people in German prison camps corralled people into the belief that the stability of the society is based around attacking defenceless people. And then they become the defenceless people. In fact, it's quite funny because, you know, the Fairfax thing, I mean, my little quip was that, you know, first they came for the gays, then they came for the gypsies, and then they came for the Jews, and then they came for me. And that's a little bit like what's happening with the Fairfax journalists in a funny kind of a way, because people don't expect that it's going to happen to them until it becomes a smaller and smaller space that people are living in. And so... They, this government wants to have a cashless cashless uh, welfare card because they've maintained the reason for why they're going to have a cashless ma- uh, card is because that will stop people from using their welfare money on drugs. Now, of course, 
in in the in the situation for the Aboriginal communities that they first inflicted this on, this was not the case. They uh, didn't just quarantine the money of people who were identified with. Uh, uh, I mean, the issue of having d- d- induce taking drugs is one issue, but that's not the issue of uh, p- pensions, etc. That is a completely different issue, isn't it? And so what you've got is, uh, but they didn't just quarantine people who had a uh, substance abuse uh, issue. They did it to everybody. Because remember what they said? They said to in, about Indigenous communities, they're not looking after their children. Therefore, we have to do this. Yes, and they quarantined yeah. the money of people who didn't even have children. Yeah, and also just absolute continuation of everything that they've done for hundreds of, well, hundreds of years to Aboriginal people. I think as well, it was something that activists said at the time is the way that they use racism as the thin edge of the wedge to get these horrific measures in and then they apply them to everyone else. I mean, obviously, I think for me, that really puts a moral and also strategic importance on fighting for Aboriginal rights, not just because it's right, but really because Aboriginal people are on the front lines of fighting for all our rights. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, they should be the people who have to bear the front because apparently for these boss wallers, they're the ones that people care for less. Now, of course, then they go to the people who are poor uh, across the board, not re- you know, and a whole lot of these people who are poor white people, but not realising that they actually have more in common with Aboriginal people as a community than uh, with the boss white boss wallers that are pushing them down. But the point is, you've got to ask the question, when are they going to start uh, cor- you know, gathering people up in the back of trucks and on, on the trains and taking them off to camps? Because that's what this is all about, cashless welfare cards. One of the things mm. you were saying was uh, something else that uh, the, the mighty uh, Liberals said at their... Uh, um, Budget announcement speech, <laughs> yeah. was about um, uh, the unemployed and rents. Yeah, I was. it was something that seemed to be slipped in there, which I haven't heard that much more detail about, which I would like to hear. I know that they're already doing it, but for people who are on welfare, who are living in, I think it was mainly public housing, but I think it's been extended, but taking rent from their payments. So before they actually have access to the money that they're entitled to under the social welfare, it's being taken from their money and the rent is being given directly to their landlord. And I'm sure that Scott Morrison said something about that. It wasn't in the section on welfare, but when he was talking about increasing community housing and trying to increase investment in affordable housing... And those tax breaks, I think, that he was talking about. No, no, too. what you're saying is giving holus bolus public money to the greedy developer class and the uh, property owning class. Yeah, for a stable, what I think he called a stable rental income, i.e. taking it from people's hmm. welfare, which I haven't heard that much more about, which I would uh, love to Well, they've already got that in practice for a variety of people in uh, that uh, it's believed have difficulty in dealing with money. But the thing about it is, is that this is enforcing and enshrining a whole system that is supporting 
and is unable, I mean, once it goes into this sort of private market and this uh, bureaucratic uh, system, they become incredibly difficult to break down, incredibly difficult to get information about, incredibly difficult. And this is all public money. This is all about taking away self-determination. So if you want to look at how it actually happens, look at what's happened to Aboriginal people. Then get used to it because that's exactly what these people are after. And it's such a rot too because those cashless cards, you can only use them in certain that's right. in certain shops. So you can't go down to you know your local market where everything is much cheaper that's and right. buy fresh food. You have to go to these supermarkets, you know, yeah. whatever arrangements they have so that you can Where's actually farmers use your money. We'll be laughing all the way to the bank, basically. It's an outrage. And and what? Further cuts to Centrelink? Over a thousand people are going to be chopped again from Centrelink. And uh, oh, actually, you know, it's fascinating if we go back to the root of this, you know, we, this idea that uh, unemployed people all take drugs. As one person said, um, she's been on uh, Centrelink for the last uh, few months, she said, and uh, Anybody who is able to buy illicit drugs on the amount of money she's receiving is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was probably took the cake, actually. Yeah, and I think also it's just ridiculous as well. What about all those people who were part of, you know, the... Uh, you know, investigation into children in welfare and all the trauma that they've received. And, you know, if those sort of people do turn to drugs, which, you know, they don't always, certainly not, you know, the majority, but the point is that this trauma is actually being caused by the government. We know addiction is a health issue, not a criminal issue. And if those people are driven to drugs, it's because of the government. Yeah, but also the thing about it is, is if you've got an incompetent government who's got who's ideologically driven, then the end game is not going to be smelling very good for the general po- population. Why do you think they're increasing the amount of police that they've got? I mean, it's a ludicrous notion that uh, you can um, uh, you, that you're governing for everybody if you put these kind of things in place. It makes sense though, doesn't it? If you criminalise more of the population, well then you're going to need to put more resources into the repressive arm of the state and it's not just the police but also border force Well, you know, when, as well. And also it's interesting with the LNP governments because they often make these uh, statements, this is what we're going to do in policy. But I started to think about it. They're going to do these random drug tests, okay? So how much is it actually going to cost to do these random drug tests? Where are they going to do it? How many people are they going to employ to do those tests? Well, I How heard, sanitary will it be? Yeah, and I also heard that, and this was just from some articles I read, that they're going to choose the sites where they'll do the random drug testing based on uh, data, so data-driven uh, reasons or data-driven um, results basically of areas that are more likely to engage in drug use. So it's just going to be racist. It's going to be classist and racist basically because whenever they try and do those, you know, data-driven analysis, they always are classist and racist because they basically confirm all the oppression and the circumstances in society, the status quo. Well, that's exactly right. It's like that joke, when did you uh, stop hitting, uh, hitting your wife? You know, the implication is that you did hit your wife. I mean, you know, it's the classic, classic outrage. We're in the midst of an outrage. 
A weak solidarity bricky team listener when the pundits kept telling us the caring business class party budget was more a socialist party budget, a, a Labor budget they kept bemoaning when it was patently obvious it couldn't have possibly been a Labor budget. Everyone knows the Socialist Party would never do anything to hurt the banks, like impose a tax on them. If anything, it would probably just hand them lots more of our money. But having thought hitting the banks isn't a bad idea, ultimately I felt ashamed, sick with guilt at so unfair a thought, caught up in the populist myth that banks exist but to rip us all off, where nothing could be further from the truth. They're screaming and yelling that stuffed pig sound we heard with due respect to stuffed pigs at being asked to pay a levy on super profits over and above or whatever has nothing to do with greed or ripping off or self-interest but is based purely on the very reason they exist. Community spirit, altruism, commercial philanthropy expressed by ANZ, another zillion supremo, Shane selling it. This is a tax on the millions of ordinary true blue Aussies the tears welled, or the well-named nab their money. It is not just a tax on a bank, it is a tax on every true blue Aussie. It's distressed supremo and screws them, Thor burned the books, couldn't believe the injustice. And worse packs Brian Hitcher every, every time, we believe this hits all true blue Aussies. When we hear that, we realise these people exist only for all of us. Hang self-interest, driven not by the bottom line or greed, but by altruism, compassion, empathy, caring only for the bottom line and that it helps them care for those for whom they care, all of us. So, listener, I hope you share my shame, my guilt at the cruel thoughts I have had about these bastions of community welfare. And how dare those same pundits suggest the tax was payback for the banks appointing a former socialist, and if she ever was, it's very, very former, former socialist and a blight on workers as its union boss, evil union boss pejorative. Oh no, sorry, that slipped out. It's Respectable Bankers Association, Respectable Supremo. Nothing to do with being a union. That's for the great unwashed. Appointing Anna for who they believe, would believe, or who would believe, that a charming Christian humanitarian like big economic guru Scuttlebum or Lash Son would be so bitter, so vitriotic, so vengeful. Why, we recall how his charming Christian humanitarianism drove his every caring policy and treatment of when he was Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats. In fact, that portfolio has brought out the best in a succession of sadists, uh, sorry, ministers. It's been suggested you might have to slash the interest rates you pay people who hand you their money, we put to the big bank supremos. We'd love to, but it's difficult to reduce interest rates below zero. No, we'll just have to increase the giving us your money fee, which already applies and guarantees nothing as dangerous as actually having to pay interest occurs. Yes, what will this new tax cost you? Because we know you already meet your legal tax obligations. You, you tell us that regularly. Every cent. Don't you mean every billion? Every cent. 
what will it cost us? A bloody fortune on tax lawyers and tax accountants to ensure we continue to meet our legal tax obligations, ensure we remain below the new threshold for the levy, for instance, legally, of course. The budget has proved a boon for the sundry state... Sorry, constabularies, as the Canberra lot have leased heaps of booze-stroke drug buses to be stationed outside every doll-bludger office. Win-win. For those who fail the test are already in the lockup and will simply be transported to the cells at the end of the doll-bludger business day. It's a great policy. We caught one of those who have devoted their lives to the common good as he emerged from the Parliament House Members' Bar Toilet. It will stop these drug-addicted bludgers. That's it. We would have liked to have sought more insights into the dangers of drug addiction, but he was off indirectly zigzagging to the taxpayer-subsidised bar to order another well-earned drink. On May Day, sure we all enjoyed the mass coverage in our media, including the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Falfax scab papers this week. Well-trained killing, train killing is great day, this week's weekly fashion week. May Day, they all receive the coverage they deserve. Like Tuesday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin devoting 15 pages to the death of a footballer. Normally we could, have a, we could understand why May Day doesn't rate a mention because it clashes with people racing a steam engine in the Danny Nongs, but that event was held a week earlier when, dare I say it, the May Day March should have been held, if not on the day itself, rather than a week after the event. Despite those 15 pages on the ex-footballer, the Wapping Sin still managed to squeeze in two pars at the bottom of P9, informing us that... Well, we know companies cook the books. No, sorry, my bias again. We know companies don't cook the books, but deep-fried sugar, salt and fat franchise KFC had a crack at cooking a worker. The two past telling us a 15-year-old had fallen into a vat of hot cooking oil and KFC, poor KFC, was hit in the petty cash jar and fined $100,000. That had hurt more than the pain of burning oil, just two pars. No mention of what injuries the young worker suffered, but we imagine she, he, because they didn't even tell us her, his gender or name, the emphasis of the two pars was on poor KFC being fined. Imagine she, he would have received serious and probably permanent disfigurement, but what's a nameless 15-year-old compared to a 94-year-old ex-footballer? The ex-bit a touch unnecessary given the 94-bit. And on disfigurement, disability and the government saving measures, bloke interviewed yesterday who lost a leg in a shark attack, knocked back for a disability pension because he failed the savings measure percentage of disability test. So we suggest they attempt to contact the shark and see if it can't eat the other leg, which we reckon would get the victim a bit closer to the required percentage, which we think starts at 100% achieved through death. Mentioned last week, Socialist Party private education shadow Tania Plibber Sink the State Sector iterated, State aid for private schools is a cherished socialist principle. And this week, her supremo, Little Billy Shorten Ambition, between advertising to win the hearts and minds of true blue Aussie white jingoistic xenophobes, sat 
as he did all those years ago at a desk in a Catholic school classroom and attacked any cuts to funding for private schools and especially church schools. Well, most of them are. Little Billy defending that cherished socialist principle. As I've said several times, the man who helped keep Pig Eye and Bob Menzies in government for eons, B.A. Santa Maria, would attack evil communists for brainwashing dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus and call for state aid for Catholic schools in the same breath, the same sentence, without even blushing. Catholic schools which were quoting the same B.A. Santa Maria, declaring it a sin, eternity in hell, to vote for the Socialist Party. Our young listener might not be aware that back then all public education funding was spent, as it should still be spent, exclusively on public, primary, secondary and tertiary education. A few days ago, the private education minister, Simon Berringham, declared, We won't be bullied or blackmailed by a Catholic school's campaign over funding levels. And I thought, I'll hang on to that to see how long that resolve lasts. Well, didn't have to keep it long. Three days later, the same Simon Berringham announced the very concessions he wouldn't be bullied or blackmailed about, showing how principle directs everything politicians do. Finally, recovering from the shock of his favourite fascists being defeated in France by the far, far right, very bad, very, very bad, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, as an aside, counting those who bothered to turn up and the 12% who deliberately lodged a blank ballot paper as a protest against the big choice, the far-right winner stormed home, elected by about 40% of the people. Anyway, Donald finally made it clear why he fired the FBI guy, Comey. Not because he, Comey, was investigating Donald, because Donald said he wasn't and Donald would never tell an untruth. And quite often he possibly doesn't. He just doesn't know what he's talking about. For instance, he keeps quoting former warmongering president. Well, that's unnecessary. They all are. Lyndon Baines Johnson for initiating this bill relating to churches not donating to political campaigns when the bill was initiated by a different Johnson. But why waste valuable money-making time checking history? No, the real reason for you're fired revealed when he pronounced Comey's name. Comey. Donald said, <laughs> thank goodness we've got Donald to protect liberty, freedom and democracy single-handed, like Rambo single-handedly winning the Vietnam War, and Donald probably thinks he did. A commie in the FBI, J. Edgar turning in his grave. Good morning. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... Yes, you are, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we've got Gregory Miller on the line. G'day, Gregory. How are you? Hello. Yes. And uh, the reason for why we're talking to you, Gregory, is because of a film that you've made called Cultivating Murder with the subtitle Global Warming, Land Clearing and Cold-Blooded Murder. It certainly is. It really exposes the corruption that's going on in New South Wales in relation to land clearing. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a documentary. It's, um, it's a sort of feature documentary. Um, and I don't know if people know much about what happened, but... Um, yeah, give them the background. Give them the background. Yeah, 2014, um, uh, 
two um, compliance officers with the Office of Environment and Heritage were held up on the side of the road when they were doing their work. They were investigating illegal land clearing up around Moree. And uh, uh, a uh, fellow pulled a rifle on them and shot Glenn Turner dead uh, after holding him hostage for uh, up to about 30, 40 minutes. Um, and so I thought it, it was a, a sort of a, an instance, a, a sort of iconic moment in a way because it sort, of, it sort of brought together a whole lot of issues about what was going on up there uh, with land clearing and, and uh, you know, who, who, who and why this happened, why this happened, because the fellow who did the shooting was uh, a 79-year-old patriarch of a very large uh, farming interest, uh, more like a corporation, in fact, and uh, basically people who were involved in land development up there. And um, since we did, since we started making the film, a whole lot of events have happened, like, like in New South Wales and the state government and now basically thrown out all of the, the uh, environment laws that had been built up over the last 20 years and decided to rewrite the whole act and create one for themselves, which uh, is really going to mean that land clearing is going to increase and get worse up there. So, Well, uh, Gregory, about. we've just been uh, joined in the studio by the one of the producers of the uh, film Cultivating Murder, uh, Georgia uh, Wallace Crabb. Sorry, it's a double name. Sorry. Uh, you've got a famous father who's a poet, right? Apparently, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. Uh, so I just sort of stumble on this. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's by the by. Uh, the reasoning behind making this film and and uh, catching on to in this incredibly, uh, where the murder actually intersects the uh, level of uh, lawlessness that is related to the power struggle between government, uh, conservation, the future of the earth, and powerful landowners. How did you catch on to this? Can I say something there, Greg? Just my my background to it was that I'd actually just done a doctorate um, which looked at environmental theory and the media, um, it was really, I made a work about the coal industry, but Gregory and I had increasingly been looking at uh, challenges in distribution models and the, the stranglehold that the broadcasters had increasingly on one-off documentaries and issue documentaries. So we were looking at impact releasing. We had experience in marketing and distribution. We were looking for a story that was a sort of story that would carry to a broad audience a message and the murder story really jumped out. And for Gregory, this was his passion project just as the coal one was my passion project. So we sort of saw it in the media and it just jumped off the page. So what what you're really saying is that there's actually, I mean, dare I say it, a conspiracy (laughs) between the... uh, uh, divulging of uh, concerns about environment and uh, how it's represented in the media and also how, uh, it, it, I mean, it really took a case like this where this uh, uh, Ian Turnbull, which is really ironical, ironic that his surname should be Turnbull, uh, actually was given 35 years. And the his uh, Glenn Turner's partner and his sister, who were there through the entire case, even the night before, they could not tell if they were tremulous yeah. about the uh, the courts being able the to give the yeah. right outcome. Mm. 
yeah, you think you think of something so cut and dried as a as a murder, the way this one took place, um, would uh, be pretty straightforward in the courts. But actually, the court case went on for eight weeks because they've got very deep pockets and they employed uh, very expensive lawyers to run the case, um, which uh, in the end they lost uh, because it was so obvious what had happened. But um, yeah, there's a, what's what it, what it re, what the court and what the evidence really revealed, and our film is based on the evidence that came out of the court case as much as anything else, um, was that uh, Turnbull was part of a group of other very um, influential um, farmers and uh, developers in that north-western part of New South Wales, um, and that they have influenced the, the National Party particularly, and uh, they've taken over and changed all the rules. They've done it their way, and uh, that's, that's really what we sort of get to in the film, to try and reveal the thinking behind uh, that, and that, you know, we're not... It's not a film that's knocking farmers. It's not about small farmers. In fact, we have, as characters in the film, uh, some small farmers who are victims of this process of... of the industrialisation of farming in Australia, and it's something I don't think a lot of people are very aware of. It's really how, about globalisation and you know massive scale of industrialisation. So the pressure by the banks, the pressure on farmers to scale up to this what they called the the style of farming of the Colorado Basin, where every tree was in the way of their maximising the factory. That was the kind of language that was used by yeah. these guys, and they felt they were under pressure to become developers. Could you describe some of the policy and legislative changes that they are able to pressure governments into bringing yeah. about? Because I was quite alarmed by the fact that, I don't know why I was alarmed, but that things are getting worse. The policies are getting worse as the yeah. damage to the environment is getting worse. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, pe- people seem to think this is just something that's happening in New South Wales, but it affects all of Australia in a whole lot of ways, particularly, as George has said, the sort of way globalisation works. But, Let's you know, answer the, pollute, the question the, about the, the, the actual legislation, the Greg. I mean, <clears throat> the environment effects of, of, what, of land clearing, you know, affect the Barrier Reef and affect a whole lot of other things. So, um, what, The what Native they, Vegetation we had, Act was had, the act um, that was repealed. Yeah, so we had an act in New South Wales, as you do in Victoria, uh, to protect the environment. It's built up over a number of years, but perhaps 25 years. Um, so they've basically, the government, because it has numbers in both houses, um, just threw that out, basically. And um, they came up with a new act, which they call the Biodiversity Protection Act. And it, uh, it really... And, and is rural development is in there as well. Yep. Um, and, yeah, it's all about development. It's all about making it easier for development to take place. So we've now, you know, we're now faced with it, and they're just, uh, it's just going up now to be sort of ratified, this bill. Um, the the actual nitty-gritty... It, it will lead to greater land clearing, basically, and, and that's something we can't afford to have anymore in, this, in, in the New South Wales and as in other parts of Australia. It's very marginal land that they're looking at. And uh, it, it's really an ecological disaster looming. As what happened in Queensland um, when Campbell Newman got in, they did the same thing. And now we've seen land clearing basically become a huge problem again up there. And so, and these things affect everything. They affect Australia's ability to reach its, its uh, Paris agreements in in terms of carbon. Um, you know, if, if this land clearing continues at the rate it is, we, we, that, that's that's out the window, really. So it's it's a big national issue, 
and that's why we that's why we're making the film. That's why we're showing it all around the country. So, Georgia, you you were going to be more specific about the uh, the legislation. I I just happened to go to see Minister Speakman at the time when it was a draft, and I heard a number of people who are lobbyists um, interrogating the detail of the act. And basically, there's a lot of issue about setbacks, um, about. Um, easements and and it's about self-assessment oh so that's it, right self-assessment self-assessment is the big um kind of headline that, Outrageous. that farmers can self-assess whether yeah, right. an area needs to be cleared or not rather than have an ecologist or or government official come and do that this is an attack on and, science and, and so it's and yeah. they will be able to on their properties though if they're if they've got um, more than 10 percent of native vegetation on their properties they're allowed to clear it and they're allowed to clear up to 600 hectares a year. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's another area. another key part of it is is about um, offsets, and so the issue of like for like. So oh. basically, native, um, you know, virgin bush can be cleared, and a mine can be remediated with planting, and yeah, that, yeah. And that, and that planting will... might be seen as the remediation yeah. of that clearing of that last pocket of. Um, mm. That's how stupid. Flora. Yeah, so that's th- how stupid these people are. When I, I was brought up in the country, and one of the uh, assessments of a farmer's view of a tree was how many po- uh, uh, fence posts you could make out of a tree. <laughs> so the whole idea of it, uh, and I know all farmers aren't the same, but I mean this is their workplace, and that's the way. And this idea that that they are the uh, people who can decide on, uh, you know, they're the best custodians of the land. Mm. Well, it's the notion of being a custodian, and that, that, that really just doesn't exist at the moment. I well, mean, there, there is are a wonderful a lot, of, a lot of good farmers and, and who are doing the right thing and want to do the right thing. Um, but then we're really talking about large developments, big money, deep pockets, um, and that, that's who are really going to be the big threat because they have the capacity to clear And in fact, you're right. Areas. You, you, you're completely correct. One of the things about this uh, film, which is uh, Cultivating Murder, which, which was so fascinating to me, was, uh, one, the phone calls, the access to the phone calls that you got for mm. the, the mm. prison, which you, I'd really like to know how you got access for them. Mm. But they really mm. reveal, Ian Turnbull, uh, the notion that uh, he obviously believes, and I say this, obviously believes that uh, it was uh, worth the murder of Glenn Turner in order to get, you know, it was just collateral damage in their plan to removing an obstacle for their plan to increase uh, land clearance and uh, the ultimate aim of removing, overturning the legislation. That's how it it, uh, ran in my mind. Yeah, there's a real sense of entitlement there and the sense that uh, it, it's my bit of land and I can do what I want with it. That's the mentality that we're, that, that, that we're resisting with this film um, because, of course, we need legislation, we need rules about how to manage this bit of this, the, the environment. It's not um, just a given that if you own a bit of land, you can do whatever you want with it. It doesn't happen in the city and it can't happen in an industrial place like a, a farm. But why so, wasn't he in prison? Why wasn't he in prison anyway? Why, why wasn't he and his son and his grandson? Well, that's right, because they, they had a business model where they would pay up you know, hundreds of thousand dollar fines um, because it, it, you know, it was just worth their while to keep clearing um, because they could pay the fines and then they'd put a crop in and they'd recover their costs. 
within a year. The, the fine was and not a so, significant amount to actually um, offset the profit they would make by clearing it, so they budgeted for the fines, you know? That's right. Mm. Mm. Just you, like miners budget for demonstration time. Did you have yep. a chance to talk about Elaine Anderson, the, the koala lady? Because she's an amazing kind of opposite farmer. She's saving koalas and relocating them and nursing. But she was also targeted. She and her husband and their farm, which was quite a productive, profitable, small farm, their their views of creating landscapes that would allow for the koalas to have habitat as well as them farming, they were being targeted by the agribusinesses. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah, really, they yeah, were trying yeah, to run her out yeah. of the district, which was very creepy. And some of the phone calls referred to, to that family. And the sooner they were out of the, the, the district, the better, which was quite chilling to but hear. But also, uh, uh, Turnbull took 30 to 40 minutes to shoot Glenn Turner. He yeah, shot him yeah. several times. There was another yeah. officer there. And he went home after the event, and one of the, the manager of the farm actually drove past the site. Oh, it's, there were a lot of other people implicated in yep. the crime as accessories after the fact. The people were t- telephoned, people knew. He said on the phone, I've just killed Turner. No one rang the police. People drove by on the road. The manager knew, the nephew knew. Um, it, it's very spooky that you could be out in that district. It's like the Deep South or something, you know, in some sort of no-go zone. So it'll be interesting when we take the film out to that district in... in uh, Northwestern New South Wales. I mean, we're lucky enough in Melbourne to be able to see it today at uh, four pm at Acme. Uh, when are you going to take it to that district? It will be fascinating. I hope you film it. Uh, we're, it, it. We'll need a little bit of planning, and mm-hmm. it, is, it is a concern. We're rolling it out. We in. have heard we have had some um, uh, fairly uh, bad, nasty warnings about coming up there with it, which only is a rag to the bull, I guess. But they told yeah, us to bring a screening, protection. Screening to, today, and there's a screening next week as well at Acme at four o'clock. So, oh right, so uh, twice. We're lucky. Yeah, next Saturday as well. In Melbourne. Hopefully, then there should be some more around as well. But um, we'll let people know as that unfolds. It's a, it's a great, it's an extraordinary film because it really does dissect. But the thing, the really uh, worrying thing, uh, I mean, you, you give this extraordinary, you've got this ability to actually give hope through the pers- person of the uh, Ms. Ms. Anderson and the koalas mm. and the tenacity of her approach to uh, continuing uh, her goal yes. of conservation, but what yes, was she is a hero, and she, but but also she she's not just a hero. She she actually garners support from the community. People take inspiration from her. She doesn't see herself mm. as a hero. She sees herself as being a normal person doing what a normal person should do. That's the way yeah. I see it. And other yeah. people uh, take part in uh, what I mean. This is. This is an end game. These people then went ahead and, despite the law, uh, to uh, uh, clear the land. And it's you make it quite clear the the devastation that. Uh, what I'm really getting at, I suppose, is that in if if we were in a better world, these people would be considered to be criminals, environmental cr- vandals, cr- criminals, and they would be carted off. Yeah. Well, that's right. And, I mean, like I said, the film is based entirely on 
the court um, evidence. And so um, they are criminals, but even then uh, it sort of doesn't stop things happening. In fact, even uh, a week after the shooting, um, those, that, um, those farmers who were doing the clearing were out again, still going. So there's a whole attitude that uh, you can do what you want, no one can stop us. We've got the numbers. We've got the politicians in our pocket, and um, we're going to do it. And that's what's happening now. That's kind of what the that's the alarm we're trying to raise about. Um, yeah, this this you know, how how it's going on, how it's developing. Can I ask uh, what would it take? Do you think? And this is a question to both of you. What would it take in terms of policy, in terms of action, to actually? conserve and preserve and protect the environment in that area. Well, yeah, well the, 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 film, the science is there. The film the, has the fallen into a political debate at a quite a timely point. I don't think uh, Greg or I or anyone could have anticipated that the laws would be repealed um, on the very night that um, Donald Trump was elected in, and all the Australians were watching that particular campaign. They turned away from their own democracy in New South Wales. They didn't notice the the bill being put up. So it's it's gone through one House of Parliament, has to go through another in New South Wales. Change of government in New South Wales would see the, the um, Act uh, thrown out. And there's a well, commitment... We hope, we hope it would. <laughs> there's a commitment um, to that. We had to, the leader of the opposition um, spokesperson on environment open the film in Sydney. We've got the Greens rolling it out and a lot of other grassroots organisations rolling it out across the state. Um, I think that it will fall into the campaign to um, to change the government in New South Wales. But it is part of something bigger. It's definitely part of something national, an attitude about uh, the corporates running the show and the media and, and journalists being subordinate to that and, and about, not speaking out. And about out. stewardship of the land and how, you know, it has to be... It has to be you know, now we, we, we have to rely on science and the research that's been done we have to know as much as we can about the impact we're having on uh, ecosystems, um, ones that, are, that have survived, um, because a lot of it is, is really under threat. And a lot of the land we're talking about is quite marginal as well. It really can't, you know, once it's destroyed, it's gone forever. So, well, we have to repeat that if you want to see this film, which is really worth seeing, which is Cultivating Murder, Global Warming, Land Clearing and Cold-Blooded Murder, if you want to know about what's happening in Australia and the, you know, future uh, viability of this country, uh, you should go and see this film, Cultivating Murder. It's on at four o'clock at Acme. It's going to be there again next Saturday as well at 4pm at Acme. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Well, we've come to the end of the show. Yes. Fascinating stuff. Just absolutely fantastic. I mean, this film is quite riveting because it is really dissects the, uh, the nature of politics and power. Mm, and completely outrageous, you would think. Yeah, no, it is ab- ab- absolutely outrageous. Um, you might be aware of a few things that are going on besides the film, which is on at... Uh, four, Acme. Acme at four. There's, uh, of course, the uh, Aboriginal f- Festival going on all over the place, uh, year a ball uh, at First Nations Arts Festival. And uh, I, I had the word that uh, uh, Bart Willoughby is going to be playing under the uh, Morton F- Bay Fig at uh, Carlton Gardens at 10am. It sounds like something one should put in one's diary, go Gorgeous. down there. Also, there's a protest, student protest happening on Wednesday. Yes. At two o'clock at the State Library, which is to protest... The increases to university fees and also the impoverishing of students after they leave university and having to pay back their hex earlier. Yeah, that was another double punch in the um, in the uh, in the budget. budget. Yeah, exactly. The uh, other thing that uh, should be on your mind is the upcoming fake news is better than real news, which is Saturday, June the seventeenth. That's the annual. A Socialist Alliance debate, a sparkling night of progressive comedy, and the MC is going to be Rod Quantock, and it's going to feature Sean Bedlam, uh, Pauline Fartsum, uh, Gab Hogan, Shirley Hood, Morvan Smith, um, and others to be advised. It's going to be a quality dinner from six thirty p.m. I don't know what an a uh, uh, not a quality dinner would be. I mean, as if I can it. imagine some that I've had. <laughs> and there's going to be a bar available. That's Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. T- tickets fifty dollars solidarity, thirty dollars regular, twenty two low wage, fifteen concession. And you can go to trybooking dot com forward slash q a e n to get a ticket. But uh, coming up next is. Uh, Asia Pacific Currents, we're going to go out with Teenage Rebel. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.